The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Your humble co-host, Paul Kaminsky, back here again to introduce yet another best of episode during our summer break here on the Third Men podcast. James Kaminsky is still off being a father for the first time, and I'm sure that's going great. He'll be back here to talk more about that and many other things when we return from our summer break next month. But in the meantime, we've got another excellent best of episode here lined up for you this is our part two of best of season three interviews last episode we covered some great interviews including ko molina johnny walker brandy st john and howlin brother jared green well this week we've got segments from both of our interviews yes that's right not one but two interviews we conducted with Third Man Records co-founder and now co-owner Ben Blackwell, as well as interviews with Dirt Bomb's drummer, uh, White Stripes photographer, Man of a Thousand Bands, Patrick Pantano, which we were thrilled to talk to Patrick this, this past season. That was amazing. We've also got one of the coolest thrills for me and James, an interview with director Emmett Malloy, who joined us to talk about his work with not only the White Stripes and the Tours and Jack White solo, but also to talk with us about some of the other music video projects he's conducted over the years, which James and I were very familiar with, and I'm sure many of you listeners at home are familiar with as well. We've also got for you in this episode a segment from our second interview with Warstick founder and co-owner Ben Jenkins. Ben, of course, a business partner with Jack White at Warstick, and we were thrilled to talk with Ben again here on the podcast. So lots of great segments lined up for you today. Next week's going to be crazy. James actually prepared that one before he had to go off and be a father. That one's going to be pretty weird, but I think you're going to enjoy it. 
So sit back, relax, enjoy this best of extended interviews part two. And I'm just going to sit here and take in the uh, sights and sounds at the old ball game, you know? Just at the old ball game. So wing batter! Mr. Ben Blackwell. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's lovely to digitally be conjoined with you, too. <laughs> Digital conjunction is uh, what we strive for, what we live for, and is what we're bound to. <laughs> I feel closer to you than I think any of us have ever felt before. And I think that's just because your dulcet tones are now gracing our ears. Uh, how are you? I'm doing quite well. Quite well today. Fantastic. So anyway, we'll just sort of jump right in here. And for anyone who doesn't know, you're Jack White's nephew, and you were one of the co-founders of Third Man Records, and you've also been involved both musically and spiritually on this journey with Jack all these many years. And one of the things we touched on on and off throughout the podcast is this idea that, you know, Jack is not the only musical one in his family. There's all this other stuff. So where did you start to gravitate first with music? What instruments did you gravitate to first? Tell us a little bit about how music took shape as a, a lifelong pursuit for you. I mean, it was actually all Jack, you know, to be perfectly honest. I was never really, you know, I didn't really noticed any instrumentation or any, um, important kind of instrumentation that would take hold in my own household but growing up mm-hmm. I was exposed to much more through him and so he's only seven years older than me so it's kind of like a, a, a brotherly connection than uncle nephew mm-hmm. in a lot of ways so I kind of served as and he's the youngest of ten kids so he didn't have any little brothers to sure to you know pass down his knowledge to i was kind of there to receive that so it's like you know he had a drum set set up in his bedroom and he would show me you know here's how you play a drum set here's the names of all the drums things like that right and uh it took slowly maybe like six or seven years old kind of goofing around on drums like that and then not until maybe i was 12 or 13 like actually properly taking that uh that challenge you know, I'm going to sit down and here's a drum kit that I'll keep at my house. And, you know, he let me borrow his snare drum stand and his snare drum, too, because I didn't have a, I didn't have my own snare kind of thing. <laughs> and so just kind of, you know, right. in, in that big brotherly way, if some, someone just needs to guide you and someone needs to, to hand you the tools and, and you find your own path. Um, <laughs> so early on, that was a, it was a lot of that. It was just providing me with... <laughs> guidance and insight and letting me figure out what i wanted to do you know jam with my friends at uh you know back home kind of thing right yeah and it certainly seemed that having places you know like the garden bowl and the and the gold dollar and all those you were right in the sort of center of this boom that was happening in addition to jack there was some other figures that may have helped guide you into that so timing is super important a lot in some of these early career decisions and so i think your timing worked out well (laughs) (laughs) No, I was ex- I was extremely fortunate just in regards to, you know, I have an older brother who is only, I think, four years younger than Jack. Mm-hmm. And those two were kind of like, they're too close in age to actually kind of have that relationship. Uh, but for me, being seven years younger, it was, you know, I turned 16 and had a license at just the right time. 
you know, I turned 16 in 98, so it's right after the first White Stripes record comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I, I have the, the resultant freedom attached to that. It lined up. You, know, I couldn't, you couldn't have really timed it much better, you know, in terms of I remember for a while when the White Stripes were predominantly playing like the gold dollar, Jack couldn't get me into the gold dollar or, or just said, there's, he said, the place is so small, there's nowhere I can hide you. <laughs> he said, like, there's, like, it's just one room. Like, as soon as you're in there, everyone sees you. And so it was probably, I think, you know, their first show was Bastille Day 97, and I didn't get to the gold dollar, I think, until a year later. Wow. So um, it was like a year of me kind of bugging him. Can I go? Can I get in? Right. Um, actually, it wasn't a year later. It was uh, It was May of 98 when they played with Queen Bee and Dura Delinquent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was like 10 months or whatever. But I just remember that being like, a for me, a transformative moment of seeing them really hitting their stride as a band, the White Stripes, at the gold dollar. And me being, at that point, I was 15. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so sneaking into this bar, which is, you know, it's right in the middle of all the drug dealers and prostitutes and crime of Detroit and <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure there's a there's a there's a fair amount of unsavory things happening in that building alone and I'm sitting there like uh, I think I'd just gotten my braces off that year um, <laughs> oh, man <laughs> like really to put it in context that was sophomore year I had Old Testament class the next day so that was uh, that was really important um, real real contrast with how things work yeah braces would be a dead giveaway as to your age at a bar I think looks like they snuck in at just the right moment too you said you got a license at 16 at any point were you a part of the caravan selling records out of the trunk for the White Stripes yeah I mean it was primarily you know the, those early days it was me and Jack and Meg I had a 95 Kelly Green Ford Taurus that for a time was the most reliable vehicle between me and Jack and Meg. Jack had a van, Meg had a Ford Escort, I believe, or yeah, Escort. Mm-hmm. Um, that were, you know, kind of good for driving around the city, but you might not want to cross state lines with. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of traveling in that uh in that Taurus. You know, Jack and Meg up front, me and the bass drum in the back, and then uh, everything else fit in the trunk. Wow. So that's comfortable, you know. That's that's traveling in style. <laughs> nice. Co had mentioned that she had a van stolen with a drum kit of yours in the back of it. We understand there's not been any progress in the case since that point, but do you have any suspects or leads you're working on? <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I think there's a a secret about that van. So it was like an old like hospital transport van or something like that. So yes. it was it was converted a little bit. It wasn't a conversion van, but the doors in the back were insanely unique in that you wouldn't really see them on the back of a of a regular, you know, old white van or whatever. Uh-huh. But there was a it was a Ford and so the Ford logo badge on the back of that truck had a sticker over it that I think I can't remember if it said God or if it said fuck in the Ford logos or whatever, it said something else. Okay. And I, that, that had been my, like, if I see it, <laughs> no, that like, if you stole that car, you would, you would, you know, you would just steal it. And oh, yeah, who's ever going to notice a, f-ing, a regular old white van driving in downtown Detroit. Sure. So I looked, I, I never saw it there, but I do know there was, I had a drum set and, our tour manager Dorian had some weird, creepy clown painting, 
that had a nose that if you turned it, the clown was actually a music box. Whoa. And, <laughs> and later on, Pat Pintano found that picture at a thrift store in Detroit. What? So, like, in the van that had been stolen from us. And at first it was like, wow, they must have made a ton of these if we found one in Detroit. And then it was like, wait a minute. They probably didn't. This is probably the same one. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. So, but all that being said, you know, Co got paid uh, insurance on that. So I don't think she's hurting. Uh, no, yeah, no, no. She, really, she seemed no, fine. No one really needs a van at this point. <laughs> Well, I, that was the true crime portion of the show, and uh, let me just say, we're not letting this die, and we're going to get to the bottom of this one. This is Serial 2. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, um, Good luck, fellas. Thank you. Thanks. Of all the vehicles I've ever toured in, like of all the self-driven vehicles I've ever toured in, that was the most perfect. We had it so dialed in in that van. Uh. The loft was strong and sturdy enough where it wasn't dangerous. No one had to ride on the loft. Now, in Potter's van, which was like right before Co joined the band, we drove Potter's van, someone had to ride in the loft. There wasn't seats for five people. And mm-hmm. so that kind of became, all right, who's riding in the loft? And it's right. like, not me, not me. I rode last time. Um, but also at the time, we had this book called The Next Exit, which was just a listing of all the freeway exits in the United States and Canada, I believe. And you could say, okay, I'm going westbound on I-75, wherever, and exit 400. And it'd say, okay, there's a McDonald's there. And so we could figure out all of our, I mean, this is all before smartphones. So having all that info is like, whoa, well, there's a Denny's three exits up. Let's just save for, let's just wait for that. Um, There was a good stereo in there. It was just like, it felt perfect. When, When that van got stolen, it was just, it just, I know personally it bummed me out and not only because my drums were the only musical equipment left in when uh, no one wanted to load out that night but (laughs) so it goes jumping to 1999 on a different subject you played drums briefly with jack white and the bricks it looks like under the listings on discogs at least god help me if that's wrong i have no idea but (laughs) what was it like to be in a band with jack at that time he was singing mostly proto white stripes material and covers it seemed i definitely felt like the weak link amongst the band i definitely felt that way yeah, I was 17 at the time, and it's Jack, and it's Brendan Benson, and it's Kevin Piak, and all guys I had utmost respect for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was surprised upon listening back when we prepped that Jack White and the Bricks on the Garden Bowl yeah. release for The Vault. I was surprised at how bad it wasn't. <laughs> I, was surprised. I wouldn't say it was good, but I, I thought I would have sounded much worse. I 
I mean, I'd only really been playing drums for maybe like three years at that point. Never any mm. formal training or anything. Just picking up catch as catch can. I mean, it was super informal. It never really felt like... I, I, don't, I never felt like it was the band, you know, like we were hanging out. I kind of felt like Jack had this surplus of energy and music and desire to go and do things, and we were just helping him get through that surplus. Okay. Um, it didn't feel like collaborative in that regard. It was just like, hey, man, this guy's got to be playing shows, you know. People, <laughs> people keep on asking, us to do, asking him to do stuff that the White Stripes can't do or whatever. Like, it was, it was you know, the span of just beyond a summer you know it was mm -hmm. that long maybe lasted for six months uh -huh. um and maybe a half dozen shows it was not terribly involved but okay. kind of cool in, in hindsight that you know we actually have recordings of two of these shows and uh, i don't know if anyone's really noticed or not but there's no actual pictures of the band the garden bowl show is just the back cover art is just a compilation of photos that Co had taken of each of the band members around that time. Okay. And then the the Gold Dollar photo is actually a totally different band that just happened to be me and Jack on stage. So it was quote close enough, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That explains that. I mean, because like Two Star Tabernacle seems like the logical progression of Goober and the Peas in a lot of ways, and the Go seems like Jack sort of joining this other collective that had already pre-existed, and the White Stripes was obviously his Michelangelo. He was sculpting off in the corner there, but that makes sense. Okay, so the Bricks was more like Jack playing with his friends and you know having fun. It it sounds like that was the fun the fun group <laughs> for that period of time. Yeah, I mean, I kind of almost thought of it as, if you look back on it, a lot of those songs are holdovers from Two Star. Like, Two Star goes to to the Bricks, goes to White Blood Cells, is, is a common path okay. on a lot of those songs. And for me, it seemed like it was just material that Jack knew was good, but my interpretation was Meg wasn't ready or wasn't able to really tackle those songs on drums yet. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, for whatever reason. And that might, that might just be totally biased on my end. I probably wasn't that much closer to being able to play them mm -hmm. myself. But I did, you know, I did play one show. Uh, I played drums for Two Star for one show. So I did have that little bit of, you know, uh, preparation. Yeah, it's not a huge plan. Basically, the, the rights to the White Stripes back catalog reverted to Jack under the auspices of this entity called Third Man Records. Mm -hmm. um, which, if you look back, going back to the White Stripes records on V2 and XL, they all say licensed from right. Third Man Records, which didn't exist other than a name. It was the name of an entity, and that was it. There was no employees. There was no nothing. Right. So when V2 goes kaput, all those rights revert to Jack vis-a-vis -vis Third Man. And so he called me up Halloween 2008 and said, hey, I got the, the back catalog rights. Let's start Third Man for real. Wow. He said, I just bought a building in Nashville. We can have offices in there. He's like, you can still run CAS. Like, that's not a problem. 
I think we could probably just run a record label on the White Stripes catalog alone. That should be enough to keep a record label going. I didn't have much going on in Detroit at the time. Dirt Bombs were just finishing up a, a year of touring. We played like 150 shows, and Mick's dad died, and my mom's house caught on fire, just you know, bookended by terrible shit. Yeah. And so everyone had basically resigned themselves to the fact that we probably weren't going to be doing much for you know, 2009. So I said, it, yeah, let's um, move down to Nashville. And uh, in, the t- in between the time where he called me on Halloween and I moved down here in March, the Dead Weather formed, wrote, and recorded their whole first album. <laughs> right. And, very and basically gave us, a, gave us a huge left turn of our immediate first push was the Dead Weather and, and their recordings, this entirely brand new band. And then the Blue Series also kind of born of that same time period of this, I think in that first year, Blue Series we did maybe from March to December was probably like five Blue Series singles. Yeah. So the idea of reissuing White Stripe stuff was kind of, you know, the impetus, but we didn't get around that until like 2010 or so, like December 2010 when we reissued the first three White Stripes albums. And everything from there, there was no big elaborate plan. This might be the hardest thing for people to believe, but it wasn't like, all right, this is how we're going to start. And then the next year we're going to do this. And then we're going to build up from here. It really was just always being aware of of where you're at and what's the next logical step. There was no five-year plan. There's no 10-year plan. It's just what makes sense right now. And try to have have a mind for where it will eventually take you down the road. But, you know, even as much as the storefront here, have you guys been here to the Nashville storefront? We have not. We've been wanting to. Poser. Uh, I know. I know. I know. Look, Anyways, our parents but, but the, are, have the gone. storefront. I don't I don't care what your excuses are. Whatever. It's fine. Um, but the storefront here was literally an idea the day before we opened. The day before we opened to the public to tell everyone the dead weather formed. Jack said, hey, man, we've got some display cases and I got a, I got a box of of records in my closet like let's just sell a bunch of shit I'm like okay and we had we didn't tell people we were selling shit, which was even better because there's tons of record nerds and we invited fans and all that crap but we had we were selling copies of get behind me satan the original promo only vinyl pressing yeah everything that we had available for sale we were selling for three dollars and so if someone asked and was like hey is <laughs> i had like some big wig from warner brothers walk up and it's like hey is that uh is that get behind me satan for sale i'm like yeah it is he's like how much is it like i'm thinking i'm gonna tell him 300 bucks which is like the the going rate i said oh it's three dollars and he's like are you shitting me? <laughs> no, $3. <laughs> and so I sold it to him. And then have people like call me like the next day or two days later, like, were you selling Get Behind Me Satan for three bucks? Like, yeah, man, that's what Jack wanted us to do. So, you know, we sold them. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. No, the, the start of the store here was, it was literally just what had piled up in, in the years after, uh, you know, what, what remained of extra singles and tour t-shirts and all that stuff. We ran it like a merch table. Right. We didn't charge taxes. We didn't, we had no mind of how business actually ran in terms of our retail spot. So we were just sending money to our business managers and they're saying, well, what, what is all this money for? And like, well, we sold a bunch of records. Well, how many did you sell and what price did you sell them? And where's the sales tax? Like, well, we didn't charge sales tax. We didn't have, we didn't have change. We were just running like a merch table. I had a, a pocket of like $5,000, a roll of 20s in my pocket. What do you expect me to do? So it was a little bit of a learning curve there, um, but we, uh, we figured it out nonetheless. Okay, well, that clears a lot of that up. Thank you. Yeah, I just knocked an episode off of your list. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, that's why you're here, is to shut this show down. <laughs> yeah. Tell you how you could be doing it. No problem. Yeah. 
we we are always happy anytime you want to tell us how you think we should be doing it. I tell you, you have open invitation. We will follow your uh, follow your lead anytime you like. Yeah, the problem is I actually have to listen to the podcast to tell you guys everything you're doing wrong. Like I don't get the cliffs. If like someone transcribed them, I know, and sent mm. them to me, mm-hmm. and and Good just news. took your 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 funny <laughs> Jack White uh, vocal impersonations and <laughs> or whatever. If they just did that, like I, I would probably be able to knock through. You know, I could probably read a show of yours a day and, and get through it. You know, I got paternity leave coming up. I got, I can take that on. Oh, shit. Yeah, we did that early on, knowing that it would never hit anybody who would know Jack White's name, and that was so very oh, wrong. I was listening to episode one, dude. I, I think I listened to, yeah, within you know a week or two of you guys putting that up there. We were, I was, I was, I had ears on it. So, um, uh, the ben, internet's uh, a small to... place, bros. Uh, yeah. Ben James and I have both turned various shades of red right now, and uh, we are good. both flattered and terrified. Um, good, that's good to hear. Yeah, let's just do it like lightning round style. I, I majored in lightning rounds Love in it. college, so big, big, big fan. Yeah. Love the lightning round. Yes. We did actually prepare a lightning round real quick that we might as well get into. Very quick answers here, so uh, let's start the music. I guess in post. Mystery albums that may or may not exist in some form or another. Let's talk about the first one. A White Stripes album post Icky Thump from the 2009-2010 time frame that was a lot discussed, we've, we've seen in articles and things from that time frame, were any tracks ever demoed for such a record? And if you can't tell us, just say pass or open the chute under me and I'll fall into the alligator's mouth. No, it was discussed, but there was nothing, there was nothing recorded. Okay. Are we ever going to see an EP-style release, perhaps, of the Jack and Jay-Z collaboration, or is that just DOA, not going anywhere, done? Uh, it's all in Jay-Z's plate. I mean, we, we'd waited, it's nine years now since that happened, uh, since the recordings happened, and still, you know, just waiting for the phone call there. Okay. Uh, okay. Over and over and over again. Was that ever demoed with the Dead Weather? I believe it was tried with the Dead Weather, but I've not found, I'm unaware of a recording of the Dead Weather doing it. Uh, okay. I know, yeah, I know Jack has said he's he's tried it with all of his bands, and I, I don't think he's lying there. Okay. Uh, I just think okay. by the time with the Dead Weather was... You know, that's a song that he plays on guitar, so it's kind of weird with him as the drummer for, you know, he hasn't played drums on all the Dead Weather tracks, but something like that, he would, you know, over and over and over, he should be playing guitar. So I think they probably just tried it for a second, like, ah, let's move on. Sure. Okay. Was there ever plans for a third Rack and Tours album, and did anything, was anything ever laid down for that? Mm, no. Okay. Okay. In the age of flower petal filled, liquid filled, glitter filled records, if you had a chance to fill a record with a never before done substance, what would it be? Keep it clean. This is PG. Love. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh, okay. Done. Uh, we'll fill it with love. That could be <laughs> clean or dirty. Uh, if you have to put a band together of two or more TMR acts, who would it consist of? Two or more third man acts. Man. I'm really in love with Sleep lately, so I would love to hear Sleep maybe partnered with, you know, Sleep with Margot Price on vocals would be uh, a very interesting. I would sign up for that. <laughs> that would, and I think they would get along just fantastically. <laughs> yes. Plans to reabsorb Margot Price's Buffalo Clover catalog and reissue those on Third Man Records? Please say yes. Um, I, you know, I've those discussions I'm unaware of, but. Uh, I, I could be in the dark, to be perfectly honest. Oh, they're so okay. fucking good, Ben. I would love those. Anyway, sorry, go on. <laughs> of all of the third man bric-a-brac collected over the years as archivist, what is the most ridiculous? God, 
gosh, you know, I, I don't want to say as archivist, but at the end of last year, there was a weird... Did you get the squid? Gaff tape. You got the squid. Uh, yeah, gaff tape squid that ended up on eBay that uh, just ridiculous bonkers um, that someone was claiming Jack made. And uh, oh, they're asking for tons of money for it. And it was definitely a holiday time uh, email uh, chuckle that we all got out of it. And then not too long after I heard from the assistant of the White Stripes old booking agent, he said, you know, I actually made that. I made that backstage and just left it around and they thought Jack made it. So uh, it was great to, fi- you know, to fi- you know, all this stuff I didn't know about all came out and we, we had a full, you know, tying together of all the loose ends. It was actually pretty great. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm yeah. so glad to know that. I don't, yeah, I don't uh, know cause... if I have a good answer for, for what I've tracked down. Or found. I mean, the White Stripes live direct-to-disc recordings from Australia, that was one I was particularly proud of because I had actually traveled to Australia in hopes of trying to get those records or at least hear them, um, and that mm-hmm. never happened. But but it, I was able to make it happen here uh, you know, under the, the third man umbrella, so I was particularly proud of that. And I think folks will hear them someday. Nice. If you had a pseudonym for a band, what would it be? A pseudonym for a band? In a, yeah, in a I'll, uh, Bill Clinton as Jim Diamond, or Jim Diamond as Bill Clinton. Uh, yeah, man, I don't. You know, it's kind of like goes along with my dislike of Halloween. Like, I, I got enough trouble being who I am. I don't got time to try to be someone else. So, okay, he would be Lockjaw. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this one, this one comes from listener to the show, Kate McCoy. What is Jack holding on the Elephant album cover? Will we ever know? Well, she probably means to get behind me, Satan album cover, because the Elephant album cover, he's holding a cricket bat. A cricket bat. Um, I, that was going to be my follow-up question. Yes. Yeah, so Get Behind Me, Satan. To be fair, I, Jack, I think, is like 90% certain of what he's holding on there. <laughs> um, and, and having actually examined what he's holding, um, I tend to agree with his assumption. But I don't think that's my place to divulge that. Certainly not here. Certainly not now. That's maybe a 20-year anniversary thing. Okay. Uh, maybe okay. we can... Uh, let that out. We did hear from Bruce Brand that he thought it was some sort of a pill bottle. <laughs> Bruce Brand was like, I think it was like a pill box or something. So like, I <laughs> It is not, uh, I will say it is not a pill box. All I right. definitely say it is not a pill box. All right, there we go. All right. <laughs> uh, bowling or baseball? Uh, baseball. Okay. You guys have recorded stuff in near space via balloon. Shows underground. Is the next logical step a third man records record recorded entirely at sea? Did we not put any... I guess we didn't. Uh, in the White Stripes Canadian tour, we did have the band playing on a boat. On a boat. That's right. But I don't think we put any of that on record. It's in the documentary, but it's not on the, the B-Show's vault package. So Where he sails away playing screwdriver. Underwater would be cool, maybe. Ooh. Uh, I'm I'm oh, man. I'm open to the challenges. Fine, you know. <laughs> if NASA approached you with the opportunity to play a record on Mars, what would you take from the Third Man Records catalog to play? Man, I think it's I think it still needs to be Carl Sagan, right? Like, it's why why switch be. it up now? It, it should be <laughs> We've gone you know. Too far. <laughs> it should be a glorious dawn, man. All right, there's there's two more uh, Zydeco music. Yes or no? Zydeco music. Ah, man, I'm not terribly versed. The closest I can say is that there's a song, what's it, Stephanie McDee called Call the Police that was covered by the Oblivions on their last LP. That's 
pretty when I first played that I fought, when I first found the original I played it in my office and Swank came into my office and we're like I don't think I even know what this is like I wouldn't even know how to categorize or qualify this this is so unlike anything I've ever heard in my life so uh, if Stephanie McD called the police as any indication then Zydeco thumbs up okay alright Zydeco yes and this comes from my wife so apologies Ariel asks does Jack White know this show exists Yes, he does. Oh, oh baby! <laughs> well, and that's the-, the end of the lightning round. Yeah. Hi, uh, this is. Do you feel like you missed out on those previous questions? Well, because there was some good convo. I'm just going to let you know. Yeah, no, I was sitting here twiddling my thumbs, looking at the screen for a while. Then I decided to keep painting my son's nursery. So, <laughs> really, just sitting in the. The fun paint fumes, it's, it's really getting me, getting me ready to ask some questions. <sighs> yeah, I'm just going to be completely honest. I, I, I gave the best of my, my effort already, so this is just going to be completely, literally phoned in. Well, it's all downhill from here. I mean, it's it, look, I won't blame you if you want to say pass on any of them, but um, <laughs> our listeners might, so there's that, but... No. Yeah. Um, and you don't know. You don't know if I said pass on any of the other ones. It's true. It's true. We will never find out what Jack is holding on "Get Behind Me, Satan." Never. Not from me. <laughs> Although, wait. I think. Um, what did What did Bruce Brand say? Bruce, you talked to Bruce, and he had something. Yeah. He said he thought it was. He thought it was a pillbox. No, it's not a pillbox. No. Yeah, I didn't I think will, so. I will one hundred. I will one hundred percent confirm it is not a toolbox okay that's fine uh oh, gosh maybe the t- maybe the 20 year anniversary will, will uh i think jack still has it maybe we'll bust it out and let people <laughs> hold it in the shop or something uh yeah i mean i'd pay to hold that um <laughs> and there's a lot of things you'd pay to hold <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah well we are doing a jack white podcast so i suppose i suppose the uh circle gets the square there um <laughs> All right, let's start the question here. This comes from episode 16. Uh, we made an assertion that there was Robert Johnson material to be found on the Paramount box set. The correction we got, there was not. Totally not. Yeah. Come on. I know. Rookie mistake. Very rookie mistake. Look, this is episode 16, Ben. We're, we're still fresh-faced. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one would say I'm still fresh-faced. What, do you care to, to divulge to the, to the dozens of people listening here how far ahead you are recording? Like, what episode is live right now uh, as we talk? As we're talking, it's episode 100. Yeah. No, I know episode 100 is what this is going to be. In, yeah. But right now, is, this isn't live. What is the episode that is the most current episode that people have heard? That would be 98 Oh, okay. So you're not recording that far ahead. No, no, no. Uh, we're we're doing this uh, the bad way. And as I'm preparing to have a paternity leave, this will be yeah. put in place, and then a couple best ofs because uh, that's what everyone best likes. Best ofs, clip show, clip shows. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. the ones everyone wow. skips on Netflix nowadays. So that's great. Um, <laughs> so. assertion was uh, that Jack was trying his best to be as authentic as possible as it pertained to his music and acting performance in Cold Mountain and the soundtrack for Cold Mountain. The correction we got is that Jack 
is on the record in an interview saying that authenticity is a trap and mentions how he dislikes the ease in which the word is thrown around. Would it be fair to say that uh, part of the third man philosophy is more one of truth as opposed to authenticity? And then what are your thoughts on the pursuit of authenticity? Is it a trap? Is it just a, a buzzword? Yeah, I think it's it's a rabbit hole. Okay. I don't think there's anything truly there's always going to be some something quote unquote more authentic. Mm-hmm. And so it's better to just be yeah, to just be true. Yeah. Um without I'm not trying to just have you put words into my mouth, but I I agree with that. So that's fair. Um, you see, you, know, you see some of it, like on the American Epic set in the in the the series where they're recording in this manner. That was how they recorded in the '30s and all that jazz. And it's cool, but is that still is that authentic when done in the you know 2010 or 2015 whenever mm-hmm. that was recorded? It's an experiment. It's a flirtation, but I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't ever find myself having deep authenticity conversations. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I don't, I, don't, I don't spend too much time worrying about it. I can understand that. It's only authentic if you're doing it for the sake of doing it, and even then, I guess authenticity is something you look back on. It's difficult in music. I mean, maybe there's other forms or artworks where where it's okay. And there's there's a big was it uh, David Chang talking about um, in his. Netflix series, Ugly Delicious, he, he mm-hmm. has a big thing about authenticity, about what is authentic and what does it matter. I'm, I might be misremembering the retelling of it, but I feel like he was talking about his restaurant, his first restaurant, Momofuku. Mm-hmm. Momofuku, sorry, I think. Um, but he's talking about they were going to close and they knew nothing mattered. And I think they were originally trying to be super authentic. And then they just said, Fuck it, let's do what we want. We're going to close anyways. And that was the key to their success. That, to me, seems to be there's some insight there. Yeah. Art doesn't come from doing something somebody else did before you. It can't. It comes from yeah. you doing something for the sake of art. It's one of the smarter things I've ever heard you ramble on. Oh, in thank this you. Episode. Got lost in my own words Good anyway. So. Good job. I'll, I'll grill you some more about uh, Ko's missing van because I'm still, yeah, still pretty sure you're the one who took that and uh, you know got her some insurance money for that. So <laughs> you know the the pegs are starting to align. I have <laughs> some you know, your face and a van on a board. <laughs> uh, the next question comes from episode 36. We said that uh, you need to try and rip the sticker off the center of uh, the Sea of Cowards vinyl in order to play the groove pressed into that area. And not only is that not true, and it's not the center area, it's not really a sticker, it's the label that's kind of pressed into the record itself, and you don't need to rip anything to listen to those grooves. Whose idea was it to press a hidden track into the center label, and has that been done before? Were you guys the first to think of that? That was 100% Jack's idea, Okay, uh, surprisingly. Uh, not surprisingly, people may be surprised to hear that was Jack's idea. Okay, I'm not surprised. And it was just we were talking about you know ways to hide music, and there's not really anywhere to hide music on an LP. And Jack just had that. He's like, well, what if you just cut here? And it was his idea originally when we were talking about it. It's like people could just like peel the label off and they can play it. So we were trying to find ways to peel or to soak a label off. Hmm. I had a 
a bucket here in the office that we'd put an LP in soaking for weeks. I think I just put a sign on it that just said, don't touch science experiment <laughs> and took it out and didn't really do anything. It just made it all kind of gooey. Um, but we soon realized we had someone do a test thing, press paper over regular grooves and you could hear the song to it. So our thoughts were, well, shit, we did the whole science experiment for nothing. And so I was then talking to the engineers, our cutting engineers, George Ingram at Nashville Record Productions. He said, oh, he's like, I got to do an override on the lathe. But yeah, he's like, I can I can cut in that area. I can cut where the, the label should be. I can't cut much. He's like, maybe 30 seconds. I'm like, shit, that's better than nothing. So yeah. that's what we did. And, and yes, 100%, we were the first people to ever do that. Wow. If someone else did, I would love that to be on your next corrections episode. But I'm almost positive that no one had done it before. Wow. May I recommend as a new way to hide music, putting a higher melting point plastic inside the wax and you have to melt your record in order to hear another 45 inside. Actually, you already did that. You have the triple decker. What am I kidding? We did a record sealed inside a record. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have dealt with, we did get talking into trying to make records involving low melting point metals. Oof. That was super, super, like beryllium, I think maybe. Like it melts at like 75 degrees or something yeah. like that. Trying to have controlled temperature, like something. Trying to make a record that would that would stay in a room, and if it ever left that room, it would disintegrate <laughs> or something like that. But that uh, I, I can't. I don't know if that actually happened, or we just got fed up and frustrated. like to welcome our very special guest this week, Pat Pantano. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's amazing to have you on the show. No, thanks. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, we appreciate it. I took a look at the website and I saw that you you talked to almost everyone already. So I feel (laughs) I'm either lucky last or I don't know. It's it's either an insult or a compliment, I guess. We still have to find E-Wolf. Oh, I heard from E-Wolf in forever. You have had a long musical career connected with just about every piece of music James and I love from the past 25 years or so. You've been one of our white whales because your name pops up in so much stuff that when James and I are are researching, we often see you pop up in association with all kinds of bands, not just the Dirt Bombs and Jack stuff, but stuff like the Come Ons, which were a revelation to me when we started doing the podcast. You know, it's one of the great things about this show is we found a lot of different music. As far as band photography goes, it's never something I really set out to do or wanted to do. It's just sort of like, I'm in a band, I know musicians, they need photos, I can do photos, let's do photos. (laughs) But there was always a little bit of a push and pull as to what an interesting photograph is versus the purpose of this photo. Mm -hmm. If it's a promotional photo in a newspaper, you've got this idea that like people are going, it's, you know, you look at the page for 1.68 seconds or whatever that statistic is, and it needs to be something simple and graphic. And But then that always doesn't make the best picture. So you, you're kind of like finding that fine line. Right. So I would just, yeah, I would take the pictures. The White Stripes were just like a band or portrait photographer's dream you there was only two of them it was really symmetrical i mean it really spoke to my in my yeah my obsessive compulsive symmetry needs and and there's only two colors and it was and they looked great and they were just perfect and jack had a really strong visual art 
ideas and he's really good at with his eyes as well so you know it just those pictures were a joy to take but then you would get bands like oh my band has 19 people in it and they're like cool all right i have no idea how i'm gonna make this work (laughs) um (laughs) the dirt but yeah (laughs) but um yeah i ended up taking pictures of a lot of the bands in detroit at that time i mean some that were used for a lot of things and others that weren't and Mm-hmm. various other things yeah you had mentioned doing photography for the white stripes so you did the cover of white blood cells which is the third consecutive stripes cover done by a different dirt bomb you had <laughs> right. uh right. co doing the first one ewolf doing the second one and right. you doing the third one and the fourth one actually yeah so for the white blood cells cover was who came up with that photo shoots kind of aesthetic the us versus them kind of thing going on was that one of your ideas, one of Jack's ideas, one of the record label's ideas? Uh, no, it was Jack and I talking about those sorts of things. Jack had an original idea of having them stand in a river of sorts, like waist deep in a river, and hmm. and then to somehow color the river red as if it was a blood vessel like a, or a blood vein, I guess. Oh, that's cool. It was just a vague idea, and um, we drove around. We did a bunch of days where we kind of drove around and did different pictures, I remember the day we were thinking we were trying to find a river and water. It was freezing, just absolutely freezing. So there's no way anyone's getting in the water. Um, but we managed to get <laughs> some really beautiful pictures, like the one on the back where Jack's sort of helping Meg across the river. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that what's going on? It always looked like a little cave to me. That's a remnant. Yeah, no, it's a right. it's a little river. I, Jack sort of intentionally manipulated the photos digitally to okay. kind of overexpose them in a lot of things and yeah so that there but i've got a <laughs> i've got a gorgeous outtake from that of him helping her across the river that's and it's really sweet and has these great colors because the whole rest of it since it was like almost winter everything was dead and everything was the same sort of odd brown mm-hmm. gray and then they had like bright white and red on and it's sort of a gentle moment where he's helping her yeah. And uh, it's a great picture. It's a great outtake from that. I really like that one. Interesting. Nice. But we did that, and there's a bunch of other outtakes with them standing by water. And the Hotel Yorba single mm-hmm. yeah. was done that day. And Okay, cool. <laughs> the picture that they ended up using isn't necessarily the best picture of that bunch, but it's the only one where they don't look like they're freezing. They literally were <laughs> shivering. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think they're in short sleeve shirts and stuff. It's really clear in all the pictures. It's like your teeth are chattering. So that was the only one really where it didn't look like they were freezing. It might sound silly for me to think childish thoughts like these. But I'm so tired of acting tough and I'm going to do what I please. Let's get married in a big But then I had this idea, I think it was my idea to have a million, like do a sort of paparazzi scene where there was a million photographers standing around them. Yeah. Like they were celebrities. And Jack had the idea of like these amoeba 
characters, these like bad germ cells, you know, coming at them. Right. So, you know, it was just a fun day. We got everyone we knew together and put them in black turtlenecks and black stocking caps and had them all. We did all these shots of them <laughs> crawling closer and closer. And we picked one and then we did another shoot with them holding cameras. And Jack kind of formulated like connecting the two. I think in my mind it was going to be one or the other. Yeah. And yeah, we just like spent the day taking these pictures and it was great. Worked out really well. You said you gathered people you knew. Who are in those bodysuits? I need to know. Is Mick Collins one of them? <laughs> Mick is not one of them. I am going to forget. Blackwell's one of them. Oh, Swank. Awesome. Swank is one of them. Long Gone John is secretly one of them. He wasn't invited, but he's in there. Uh, um, the drum, I think, oh, I forget his name. The drummer for the Wax Wings, Dean Fertitta's band at the time. I think he was there for some reason. And uh, Marcy Bolin, who was in the Von Bondies, yeah. was mm-hmm. one of them. The bacteria Marcy. I'm trying to think. As she's credited. You know, it's a question for Blackwell. He's really good at specifics. Okay. This one time, that's one place, and he'll roll his eyes and go, I was 2006 in Spain. I'm like, oh, right, right. Anyway. <laughs> um, so he would remember all those people. I, I'm trying to. Yeah, I know. Like, Swank was one. Blackwell was one. Marcy Poland, yeah. a couple other people. That's awesome. Well, you also mentioned the Hotel Yorba single. Did the Yorba staff mind you guys being outside for a long period of time? No. I mean, I don't think we were out for that long. I could say it was freezing. We never ran into them, but I remember hearing later Jack telling me that they were going to do a video in one of the rooms for Hotel Yorba, and it's going to be great. And so they went, and it's famously like kind of a transient, like who knows what happens in that hotel sort of thing. And they just at the front door were just like, no, you're not. And we're like, look, it's, we're not going to do any, like, and they're like, you're not bringing cameras in here kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. We're like, oh, I don't know if they actually ended up talking them into it or not, but I remember the story that was that they couldn't get in or they were, they were definitely not wanted. I hope I I told you that I had a smile on our face and we were very, very positive with love when we walked into the Hotel Yarba. But I cannot tell a lie that uh, whether it's a Hotel Yorba or Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, bulletproof glass is not a great way to make friends. I believe they were chased out at some... Like, they made it to the room without the cameras, because I know Brendan Benson had talked about leaving the cameras behind and not and just recording up there, but... Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have any run-in with them. We were just on the outside, uh, you know. On the subsequent White Stripes album covers, they're significantly different in that they're sort of set up like still lives in a way. I almost get like a Frida Kahlo kind of vibe from the just the structure to both Elephant and I guess Satan later on. But what led to the design inspiration for how Elephant was set up in that way, the album cover? It was all Jack. Yeah. Like, not 100%, but... Well, first off, I remember hanging out with him one time and he kind of sheepishly half apologetically said like hey look you know we're going to do the next record and we've got this thing where every record that we've done we've done you know with a different engineer a different studio and a different photographer and so because i had all that year beforehand been doing a lot of press photos for them and little promo things and anytime jack needed a photo i would like Mm -hmm. run over and do one so there was a bunch of photography i was doing and and he kind of said look we're not gonna i want to use someone else Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, of course, whatever. I mean, that's totally cool. 
And then at the last minute, I got a call from Dan Miller, who was, yeah. I, I don't know if he was properly managing them, but he was helping Jack with some scheduling and logistics and stuff. And he's like, hey, come do the cover. And I was like, uh, all right. So at some point, either the person they chose couldn't do it or they changed their mind or I didn't really ever get a clear answer. But so for some point, so I went to this studio. Yeah, Jack's like, we're going to be sitting on this crate and it's going to, you know, we're going to have all this elephant ephemera around us and ephemera, for lack of a better word, <laughs> elephant related stuff. Um, and, uh, and, you know, hopefully when you blur your eyes, it's kind of kind of make the shape of an elephant head and, and okay. um, there, go with it. And I was like, great, that sounds great. And so it was a proper studio. <laughs> it was different than before when I had shot him where it was my own bunch of cheap gear. But I did end up using like my old twin lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even though there was a bunch of fancy gear around, I ultimately ended up plugging the lamps into my old antique camera. There's a bit on written somewhere in the liner notes of that record, like nothing in the making of this record, you know, is digital and nothing was made after 19 whatever. And yeah. that holds true to the camera, too. Wow. So anyway, um, my input was just sort of lighting, technical stuff. I did do one thing kind of for myself, and I did it subtly enough because I didn't want to ask and throw another variable into Jack's pre-made design. So I kind of did it subtly thinking maybe someone would notice, but it was more for myself, this idea that I hit them hard on the left with a really hard light mm -hmm. to like create a shadow of Jack's coming off him that would line up such that it looked like a third member. Huh. And when you look at the records, it's not really there. I mean, depending on the different layouts, like Jack would manipulate the photos. So in some you can see it a little more than others but like this idea you know he the of the number three and the trinity and like jack sort of having this like unknown variable that functioned as like a third member and like this kind of idea that i had in my head that i wanted to just kind of maybe peek in there a little bit mm -hmm. that i never really talked about much because i didn't want to make it a big part of it i kind yeah. of just it was a subtle thing and so that was maybe a little bit of an input. Mostly it was just the lighting mm -hmm. and the how it was captured. And then we did a bunch of other little shoots that day. We did so one of the singles has the, the mouse running by. And right, those, right. those two, you know, with their toes up, you know, hiding, like running scared from the mouse, that single mm -hmm. cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We did that that day. And a picture of Jack painting an elephant, like as if he's painting Meg did that one right right i think that's the seven nation army a lot of little little pickup things yeah that's the way that happened yeah i love those photos yeah they're fantastic 
really happy and proud to take them to be a part of some small footnote in that band's history. So, you know, I mean, yeah, the, I, I said this before that I'm proud of those photos, but they're great photos, not really f- for anything I did as much as for the fact that those guys make great records. Like, they're not bad photos. I like them, but I've got just as good of photos that aren't in 10 million homes, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, they're iconic more because of what they accomplished. But I'm still, I'm really proud of them and really happy to have done it. And I think they're great. And I think the White Stripes have always been one of my favorite bands. So Nice. Did you file their records to the end? Or did you sort of drop off when you stopped working with them professionally? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you listen to them? Yeah. I'm one of those people that just like pretty much every note they ever played, I just think is great. Yeah. Just the whole vibe of the band has always been great. Yeah, I guess I have my favorites, but no, I just, I never, I always liked them. I always thought the records were great. Cool. Like the Get Behind Me Satan record, they had a big budget for it and they brought in this photographer they really liked. And I was talking to Meg the night before and she's like, oh, we're shooting that cover. And I was like, oh man, can I come over and just vibe out and just like hang out and watch this fancy professional photographer work? She's like, yeah, of course. (laughs) And I called Jack the next morning. I'm like, are you sure this is cool? I mean, do you got a close set? He's like, no, come on over. So I came over and watched those guys put those shoots together. That was really fun. I ended up kind of like assisting the photographer a little bit, just carrying some gear and grabbing some things just because maybe he, I don't know, maybe he needed it. I I can't remember. Maybe I was just making myself useful because I felt like I was hanging on, but... Yeah, it was a similar sort of process. Jack had these really strong ideas, and then the photographer kind of had to just kind of flush it out with the lighting and stuff. Well, since you were there, and we've asked literally everybody who was there so far, do you know what Jack was holding on that cover? What he's holding? Yeah, he's holding like a round... It's a microphone, isn't it? It's like a big, long, white tube of some kind. Right, right, right. Bruce told us he thought it was a a pill bottle of some kind. Ben Blackwell refused to comment. (laughs) A lot of people have said that it looks like a Tesla, like, light bulb or something. I, I don't know. Uh, we, oh, I'll have to go back and look at that. In my mind, it was a microphone, but maybe I'm wrong. I know they're holding a microphone, I think, in the single cover, I want to say. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. No, the microphone's above them. That's what it is. There's the white microphone. Uh, like right, in the middle. right. And what is he holding? And Jack's holding, a, like, a round, oblong thing. And Meg's holding the apple. I knew what it was at one point. Man. Because when I was there, I think he mentioned it, but now I can't. That's okay. It's still a mystery. And (laughs) those things are better as mysteries, yeah. Well, the mystery thing I was talking about, also another mystery you might be able to solve for us. Have you any leads on uh, Ko's missing van that went missing in Detroit (laughs) years and years ago? Yeah, we're trying to track this thing down. Oh, that van. Do I have any leads? Her white van that she got a pretty payout from an insurance company for. Right. Where were you on the night of... (laughs) (laughs) I was definitely nowhere near that van. Um, Yeah. Well, It had a drum kit in it. My thing, which I've asked Co, and she, of course, denies... I'm kidding. But I I, I was just like, you got a pretty big payout for that. (laughs) She's like, shut up. He dismantled it in the middle of the night and buried the parts. Said, <laughs> <laughs> so, look, it was stolen. With poor Ben Blackwell's drum kit in it. Right, just... right. It's all buried in Meg's backyard. Somewhere. And a painting of a clown, apparently, too, was in there that was found in a, a thrift a shop. A thrift store. That's right. yeah. Oh, Dorian's. 
Yeah. Oh, sh- forgot about that. Yeah. We're getting slowly, dirt bomb by dirt bomb. We're, we're <laughs> learning more about what was in this van, what happened to the van. We'll get there. Um, oh, yeah. I guess I guess that's the good thing about being last in the interview. I can either confirm or deny certain <laughs> reports as much as my memory allows. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that was, there was a few things lost. I, I guess the biggest one being Blackwell's kit. And, yeah, Dorian had some little things she had bought on tour and one of them was like that creepy clown painting (laughs) and i'm pretty sure i found another one and everybody was that was the big thing like is it the same one (laughs) yeah (laughs) there can only be so many yeah stuff like that's probably pretty mass produced but yeah the fact that i don't know yeah yeah mass produced but perhaps not mass purchased so that's really what we're coming down to um would like to welcome filmmaker, music video director, artist supreme, Emmett Malloy. Emmett, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah, great to be on this. Great to relive a seminal moment in in my life from the past, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah from the not-too-distant past, too. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did just rack up another one. I updated the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well... We've been admiring your work for quite some time, so it's, it is really great to, to be talking to you today. Thank you. Just going through your music video, I guess I would, I can't really call it a discography, videography, how about that? Going through that videography was like, oh my God, he did this? Oh my God, he did that? It's like all my favorite stuff from like a long time. So it's amazing to talk to you, Emma. Thank you. Yeah, cool. I know, I look at that same list sometimes with a different version of, oh my God, I did this. <laughs> <laughs> you were basically responsible for all of Total Request Live at, at I know. some point. I know. I, I really. It, it was a fun era because the you know whatever there was just if you had a record deal you got a big budget for a music video and you know now I know that isn't so much the case. So it was really a prolific era of music videos that now being on the other end of it you realize that that was a real like moment in time yeah yeah do carson's checks still cash (laughs) yeah totally (laughs) i mean i was just fired up i mean you guys gotta know this but like getting a white stripes video at that time in that era that was just like you had gotten like a Nike commercial, you know, you were getting the the best of the best and the pressure was real immense, you know, to do one because you were like, wow, how's this one going to stack up to that great one that Michelle Gardner did? How's it going to stack up to all the ones that had been done? So you really felt a a ton of stress, but if you were smart, you would channel that into a good place, you know, but it, I remember having a couple tough nights before each of those shoots going, damn it, what if I make the one shitty White Stripes video? It's going to be a terrible situation. And then he just kept calling you back. I know. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm right, but I think we might have logged the most um, White Stripes videos, which, or at least Jack White videos, which is a incredible accolades yeah well if you count all of under great white northern lights then you've got everyone beat by a country mile like (laughs) that's pretty wild i feel a lot of pride in that one you know because that that really means a lot 
I have a burning question about the Limp Biscuit Method Man and Together uh, Now video. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got, I got lots on that one. Man. My, my burning question is: Please tell me everything. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was able to watch him and Method Man record that track. I remember Method Man. I remember. Method Man, like, be, you know, whatever. He was out of his mind, and he laid down that super good rhyme. The whole time, I was like, how did they fucking get Method Man on this record? But they were so big at that time that, you know, if you paid the right money, I realized that more than ever as time has gone on where there's always a price, you know, no matter who you are. So, anyways, that video we got to develop, and we had to use those wire rigs and... Holly Shore just would show up everywhere. So we had to work them in, and they were kind of like almost like connected, even though they didn't have much to do with it. There was a little bit of like at the end of one, it kind of rolled into the other one. I remember that. And I think my best story is that Method Man and Red Man just were, you know, I mean, they were nailing Heineken's and smoking tons of weed the whole time to where (laughs) at the end, like on the wire rig, you know, after this big safety meeting, I think Method Man was, you know, I mean, he was, at that age, everybody was wilding out, so he was just hammered, and he gets up on the rig, and it, like, flies across, and normally you're supposed to, like, do little ninja stops, you know, because you're, like, waiting for the end. He was kind of faded, where you just fly him across, and he would just react when you hit the wall, you know? It was like, boom, and they'd be like, oh! And it was just real funny, because it was, like, so obvious, that he was, you know, in no shape to do it. But it, we were just, it wasn't dangerous in any way. It was just, yeah. he didn't yeah. probably lay it out for us. And then my other favorite part is like, at lunchtime, my mom was the caterer, of course. And we had this huge lot in the Universal Studios. And we were on one of the stages. And during the lunch, Meth Man walks in and you just hear, all right, everybody, who took my motherfucking weed? <laughs> and you just hear everybody like, dive into their phones and every like uh limp biscuit manager is like texting their weed dealer from 10 years ago like we gotta get some weed in here and i remember i was like i mean nobody took it i that's just not so i ran in and i was like while this was going on i tore apart their dressing room and then was like where are those beers and i went out into the dumpster and found the heineken 12 pack box and there was a huge bag of weed in it. And I came, like, right there, and, like, I found, like, the lost cat. I'm like, I got the weed! <laughs> Hilarious. And then you said some comment, like, you know, basically more or less to the extent of, like, look, you found that shit. Yeah, you know, like, it was just, like, a hilarious moment. I just remember my mom, like, staring at my mom while we was yelling, you know, who took it? And it was just kind of over the top. Let's get it on. Twelve rounds of throw down. Who hold crown? Protect land with four pounds. Limp biscuit. Get around like Mary Go. Bust a scenario. Coming through your stereo. Wild brisket. Lifestyles of the prolific and gifted. Eight essential vitamins and minerals. Delicious. Word on the street is they bit my thesis. Knocked out they front teeth is trying to taste mine. Acting like they heard through the grapevine. Dope feeding for the baseline. Two for five rounds. Pharmaceuticals. Hardest nails to the cuticle. Where'd you find that monster? She beautiful. Wu Tang and Limp biscuit. Get roll on the set, kick a hole in the speaker, pull a plug and then jack. Mic check, so what's it all about? And where we gonna run? 
but that, that video was awesome. I, I mean, I felt like I, you know, that was so much fun to do. Your first project with Jack was in 2005 for the My Doorbell video. What was your first interaction with the White Stripes? Who approached you? Did Jack White approach you? You know, at that point, you just submitted ideas for bands that, you know, would allow you to. So you were always hunting. And, you know, at that point, they were already massive and had done seminal videos. So they were just somebody I was dying to work with. I got at them because Ian Montone is a very good friend of mine. Yeah, Ian Montone, Jack's manager, right? Yeah, he started, you know, managing them and we became good friends. And when that record came out, I wrote on Blue Orchid and um, didn't get that one and then had a good idea for Doorbell. And that idea just caught Jack's attention. You know, I remember sending him a lot of good visuals and things that, you know, I just knew how thorough of a person he must have been um, and how into style and look and aesthetic he was. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I tried to make the treatment very present in all those ways. And and anyways, he just liked the idea. And then Ian gave me the vouch and, and we were on our way. trying to think if I, no, I only met his stylist. So I met him at the Magic Castle in LA, which is the perfect oh, wait, so place did you, to meet did, Jack White. Did you meet him with with Brandy St. John? Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we just talked yes. to Brandy last night. Oh, great. Yeah, Brandy's the best. <laughs> also, wait, the Magic Castle. Yeah, that's, that's the thing here. That in, the little, in the little theater there, and I got to meet him, you know, that day when we were getting prepped up and, um, you know, getting ready to shoot. So it was like, you know, hey, what's up? Here we go, you know, like right into it. I I didn't get a whole lot of time to, those days just never came with a whole lot of hang time. They were like, we got to get right to work. And and that's kind of where that one began. But we were in the right sort of setting. I mean, now that I know him as well as I do, I, I, you know, always want to pick a place like that. He just loves stories and history and, loves that type of stuff rolling into a project he wants to know he's a real like american history or just historical person and and that location was what got him real excited and that just led to a good day yeah that's something i don't see a lot from his work well not what you were saying but like close-up magic isn't something we typically see a lot from jack but i'm very interested in knowing that he's interested in that because yeah, I, yeah. I want to see the type of close-up magic he wants to see. I know. He would be great. And I remember him just sitting there as he does. He just loves to talk. 
to the guy who works there or, you know, that's, he just lit up on all those things. But then, and then we had all those kids and when those kids came in dressed and we got that stage set up, he, you know, whatever. I just remember sitting there going, wow, I never knew he could play the piano this well. You know, I hadn't seen that out of him yet. I'd only seen him, I'd seen him at the El Rey Theater, I remember before on the record prior. And it was just kind of a guitar shred fest. So it blew my mind in another way, but that was fun to see him on the piano because I was like, Shit, I never knew he was so much like Jerry Lee Lewis, you know? <laughs> yeah, where he's hopping around a bunch. Yeah. Were the kids' reactions, was that easy to get or was that like a one-take thing or? No, you know, it was a little, it, it was, yeah, it was easy to get. I would say we got that. You know, I had a puppet show there that day too. So some of the kids' reactions are to a puppet show okay. that I just did. <laughs> And filmed it because it was, you know, whatever, it's, we're taking the curtain back here, is like, that's how you need to do music videos. At the end of the day, there's only so much, you still have to make them interesting in that short period of time. And and you got to always be thinking, okay, I'm working with kids. How am I going to entertain them? I've already thought about how to make this look cool and what, what, how to make Jack happy. Now, how am I going to make these kids shine? And, and so it was a little bit of everything, but you see the kids start getting up and dancing and that's all Jack. Yeah. The doorbell was more a hundred percent our idea. And he added all his personality of the band into it. That got us started. And from there on out, everything's been collaborative, like if you thumb, 100% collaboration, you know, meaning it was like, let's do something in Mexico, let's address these types of thoughts and visuals, and then I put an idea around it. That one was very collaborative. Rock on Tours was just, you know, that reeks of a Malloy special. So <laughs> that, that one was him, but then he gets us Paul Rubin and right. starts looking for ways to add to it. You know, once you get going with a band, I, I myself, I'm a collaborative artist and I get a lot out of speaking to them. I think in some cases you realize like, Maybe the communication can sometimes impede the process. Mm. He's somebody where if he's in the mood to talk, I'll, I'll take it any time because it, it always is a real productive journey when you get to speak on, on those levels with him. So it's had a lot of different shades, but we communicate really well. And I think all of our videos have had some form of collaboration. Some are more direct than others. And then on the films, it, it goes, you run the whole gamut, you know, where you're just, you know, you feel like you're both leading him and chasing him yeah. all at once, yeah. you know, well, and yeah. well, that's, yeah. that's just kind of the fun of it. Well, we'll we'll get to the films in just a moment. I just had two quick questions. You touched on Icky Thump and Steady As She Goes. Icky Thump and Steady As She Goes, I think, are his one and two top-selling or most popular by every metric we've uncovered 
in his entire wow. career. Like those are the top two. And it's funny you'd think it's Seven Nation Army, but actually it's Icky Thump and Steady She Goes as number two. Again, according to like, you know, chart, chart positions and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess um, Icky Thump got the benefactor of being after a smash like Seven Nation Army, but it seems like Seven Nation Army caught fire in the last. Five years. I know? think that one's got like the mar- that one's more the marathon. You know, Icky Thump was more yeah, like yeah. The, the spurt because he had joined forces with Warner Brothers and stuff like that. But well, yeah, uh, just let's talk about those two videos very briefly. It, the Icky Thump video in particular, it's one of my favorites because it the song itself almost mirrors the kind of herky jerky sort of quality of that song. How much of the style of the music do you? allow to influence the approach of your filming i assume you have to like i guess with music videos yeah. uh, you know appreciate the cadence of a song is that more in the editing process where you're sort of editing around the cadence of the song how does that work i think it goes a lot of ways you know and some songs maybe aren't that good and and you got right. you got to make sure your visuals tug them along sure but in jack's sure. case they're always such strong songs but i will say that one there was just such, um, that was such a big moment to be a part of that band, that release, that record, that song, how it felt getting that song. I was like, what the, f- yeah. you know, what a yeah. crazy song. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I do think that song led the way to everything. those are lenses you'd see on a old Nirvana video or something, you know, like swing and tilt lenses that allow you to get that energy. And then by that point, the DP that I have worked with on that video, Giles Gunning, who shot, you know, both of the long forms, um, he and I just were, were into the band. So I think when you really know the music well you're you're anticipating things really well mm-hmm. on all fronts and i think by that time giles and i had locked in to who jack was and and that film was the benefactor of like a real thorough relationship and and so yes we 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 were attacking it on the front end on that one um right. which right. i think that's why that thing has such a rhythmic quality you know yeah yeah, yeah. Let's move on just to talk about Under Great White Northern Lights here a bit because it's such an iconic film for the band. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of it turning? I mean, it seemed to start as sort of a pure concert film, but really morphed into something a lot more of a documentary journey of the swan song of this band. Can you talk to us a little bit about the evolution of that project? Yeah, I mean, you know, documentaries, now that I've 
done quite a few of them. They're really defined by maybe something you didn't expect to happen has to happen. Right. And that seems to be where all, whether I'm doing a boxing one or, you know, one in music, it's like, you know, if they stay straightforward, they kind of end up being cool. But if something you didn't expect happens, happens, it seems to shift it. And all of a sudden you've got this new sort of film that you weren't even expecting. I found that to be where maybe the ones that have stood the test of time the best, that occurs. And that was certainly the case. I mean, this began with me sitting on Inky Thumb shooting all night with him in the old Nashville train station and prison. And we were just talking. He was telling me about this tour of Canada and how he was going to play all these places he's never played before. And I was like, whoa, you know, are you going to film it? And he was like, no, I hadn't thought about that. And I just stayed on him about it. Like, hey, what's up? Are you going to film that thing? Because it just sounds too good not to film. You know, like, why don't you just let me and Giles come and we'll do it. And ultimately, that's where we landed was just meeting them at kind of the more colorful stops along that tour. It was what you guys just mentioned. Obviously, they ended up really being the last shows that they did. I know they did a couple of more, but that was really the the end of the band in most regards. And it was real crazy to be celebrating their 10-year anniversary and kind of feeling the end of that band. I thought it was really more the temporary end, but it ended up being, you know, the end as we know it. And it was also odd because he was playing these places that have probably never even gotten a big band to come there you know yellow knife and white horse and yeah so everybody in the town just they didn't really know much about the band they just knew something big was going on in their town that night and they should probably go and so they showed up seeing like probably how people would have been with the white stripes back in the whatever early 2000s like showing up not knowing much about them and getting their mind blown and that was the coolest part of that film is like it was a it was like we got to go back in time to watch like what it would have been like to see the first white stripe show so i remember we showed up day one and we did vancouver we like kind of scouted in vancouver and then i think the next one was was um white horse and we rolled up there and he did the show and he just he was just going off. He felt really like possessed. And we ended that night going, guys, we got to get our together. This guy's on another level right now. And I remember me having to give everybody this pep talk. Like we got to keep up with him, man. This is incredible. Just, we were really lit up in a good way. And it really got us in check. Cause I, I don't think we slept for the next couple of weeks, you know, like truly, cause the travel was so rugged and they were, doing it we had a a plane but it was like no better than a greyhound bus and so you couldn't sleep on it and you just kept landing and then he has so much energy that we'd be like we gotta go shoot b-roll of the town and then jack you take a nap and we'll meet you when you get up and suddenly we got no sleep the whole trip but we were really we just kind of you know um drank beers and found our way through it
welcome once again the amazing, fantastic, Worstick founder himself, baseball bat maker extraordinaire, Mr. Ben Jenkins. Thank you for coming on the show again, Ben. Thanks for having me, guys. Ben, you're back. Maker of dreams, hmm. sculptor of wood, basement of ball. Right. You're you're here with us again. Yeah. How, lo- how long has it been? A year and a oh. half, I want to say. Yeah, something oh like that. Oh my God, are you serious? <laughs> it's been a minute. Oh man. The Worstick HQ was not even, was but a glimmer in your eye at that point. I think they had just announced it recently, so... Yeah, it's, it's, man, so much has happened. It's, that's crazy that it's been that long because there's been a massive amount of things happening. So, yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Seems like yesterday, guys. Well, for the folks <laughs> out there who, who don't know, Ben is the founder of a design company, One Fast Buffalo, as well as the founder of one of the premier baseball bat makers, I'll just say it, of this century. As seen in the World Series, by the way. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, (laughs) Along with co-founders Ian Kinsler and Jack White, what's Warstick been up to in the last year and a half since we checked in? Oh, man. That would take a couple hours. Um, I think since we talked to you guys, things have... You know, people would always tell me, you know, this is going to blow up. This is going to blow up. And I didn't know what that meant. You know what I mean? Like, do I get a a letter in the mail when we officially blow up? I mean, what (laughs) signals that? And yeah, I think if you explode, you will be the last one to know. Right. And then about, I don't know, last, really last this time, about this time last year, things kind of blew up Mm -hmm. and then they've been kind of blowing up since. And I'm like, oh, I get it. (laughs) So the business has just been growing a ton in the last year. And that's just really accelerated growth. And I'm really proud. It's been in a way that we're really proud of. It's, um, it's been really, I don't know, maybe the momentum of just the right word of mouth and um, the right amount of stories in the press and just focusing on the business. It's not like we're heavily advertising it more than we did. And we don't really do that. We just try to focus on the experience people have with it. And, you know, like you said, word of mouth is still, is still king, you know, yeah. and if you're not doing that, who gives a crap? You right. Know? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you say you're, your advertising hasn't been more, but your Instagram has been uh, blowing up. Like people really like that. Well, yeah. That stuff. Okay. I mean, well, if, yeah. I mean, if we call that in, uh, Instagram, I would say, you know, what's kind of crazy. I mean, inside scoop is that I really, what I did is first couple of years of Jack, you know, coming on with a company, you know, it's a lot of figuring out well, what do we do? Like you, when you get money, it doesn't mean you just have, you got to figure out how to grow, you know, how, mm-hmm. how what's going to do that. It's not like when they put the money in a bank company just starts growing. So there's a lot of experimenting and things like that. And one of the things I got away from was really letting One Fast Buffalo be the heart and soul and center of the creativity. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of listened to the business people a little bit too much, I think, and got away from that. And then, um, you know, about a year ago, I said, you know what, that's wrong. And um, kind of went back to it and made One Fast Buffalo basically be the marketing and creative soul again. And boom, then the blow up happened. I mean, it's kind of as simple as that because we, we had that back. And so Instagram is a great example. I mean, we just... You know, it's not so much about, oh, are you good at social media? It's, are you good at creating interesting content and really in real things? You know, so we just put a ton of energy into putting on these really cool events uh, over the last year. A lot of them with Jack. It's been really good timing for him to be on tour. And we're doing Sandlot games around his, a lot of his uh, shows that have been some amazing experiences. You know, the the good social content comes from good old hard planning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You know, just creative projects was was the thing that we're really good at at OFB. So yeah, and that's, so that's really grown. And I get, I don't really see it as 
advertising I see as like, hey, let's create this experience and just capture what it is about. Then you got content and then people like it and then you go. Right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Sandlot games are so cool. I mean, they, they just oh, really, man. they've been captivating like people who, like I, I've been hearing from Jag fans who just never have been to a baseball game in their life and they, <laughs> had, uh, they have a blast. Uh, I, was, oh, yeah. I was lucky enough to be at the Battle at the Beach and uh, had a had a wonderful really? time cheering right, right, on. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember. Okay, you're right, you're yeah. right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was cool. It was a, it was a lot of fun. I, I'm really happy you guys are doing yeah. those things. It's 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 awesome. Yeah, that was like a. Um, so we. It's funny when we do these. There's always a big kind of vote between you know whatever me my guys and Jack and 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 Lalo is tour manager and whatever we're doing and it's a, like is this one private or public right. and that's kind of a big deal because public ones are a lot more chaotic and a, you know just a lot more planning and stuff and then the private ones are a little simpler and that one that you went to is very much kind of a. No one knew about it, right? Yeah, it, yeah. I think very, you would announce it like the day before or something like that. Yeah, yeah, just kind of a friends and family kind of thing like that. And then, you know, it almost in a way is cooler because it's like, wow, these guys just got together and play baseball and they right. happen to be showing <laughs> us that they did it now. And then we've done some that are very public. And we did one in Dallas where we had, you know, a couple thousand people. And that was just one of the coolest vibes ever I've seen even in my playing days, you know. And so I know right. that was fun for Jack. Cooperstown. Oh. I'm so I'm so upset. I missed the Cooperstown one. Yeah, Cooperstown was. Uh, I mean, for for Jack, for me, for all the people there, it was one of those times. It was like we've all said that was easily one of the top. I mean, I've heard Jack say this is the best day of his life a couple times. So sometimes I think he says a little, but um, it was just uh, it's just one of those like, oh, this is the best day of my life. And it's just for Jack, it was like, okay, we we got to play Sandlot game in the mud. It was extremely fun. We went straight from there to the show, and the, and it was like kind of like Woodstock, where it was like raining the entire time oh it was great and it was awesome but like yeah. awesome and um our whole squad was like up on the side stage i don't remember where it, it was a blur but somewhere in the middle of the show his guitar tech says hey guys he wants you guys to come on stage and we looked at him like no that's a bad that's a bad idea it was, it was during steady as she goes oh was it okay yep. And we're like, that's a bad idea, man. He's like, no, really. And we're like, all right, here we go. And, of course, we look like idiots, but it was just kind of amazing, surreal-type feeling because why does that happen? And then, um, <laughs> and then you know, like, I don't know what the word is, the joy. Like, after the show, it was just pure joy. And fueling all that was he knew he knew that he got into the um, the their director of the Baseball Hall of Fame was at the game, and mm-hmm. um, he gave Jack an award and, and basically said, hey, I want to take this bat that you used and put it in the Hall of Fame. And Jack almost, like, fell apart right so it was just kind of all of that fueling a show and it was like it was amazing it's gonna be hard to ever top that one no matter what we do it's all that one's that that one's the bar at this point so and uh not only is it a jack white bat it's a war stick bat too so you're in the hall of fame you did it yeah man no it's cool and and, uh yeah it's it's very surreal and um i got to do kind of the um presentation with the guy and it was no it was super cool and now yeah ian's already in the hall of fame and yeah no jack jack is it, you know, genuinely like stoked about that. Like, okay, wow. that game. Uh, I swear mm-hmm. to God, I passed right by you guys uh, driving because I mm-hmm. was driving back from the Hall of Fame that morning, and then I saw a baseball diamond, like with what seemed to be a little league on it, and me going, "Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be crazy if Jack White was over there?" And I think, <laughs> I think that was you guys, and it makes me very. <laughs> To be honest, it was a super rainy day, and there was really no no one really had any business playing baseball that day. So yeah. the reality is, I don't think anybody else was playing baseball. Like the mayor, we found a little uh, b- uh, ball field not in Cooperstown, right, right down the road, and yeah. like the mayor of the mayor of that town 
was out there like helping dry the field and prep the field <laughs> to get it ready because he knew because he the hall of fame director had said you know jack wants to play baseball really bad and he's like i want to make it happen so i mean if you saw someone playing baseball i don't know who else was playing other than us and it was raining the whole time which was crazy so i would well, i would maybe. like to point out i would like to take this opportunity to point out that you and jack white got into a hall of fame before jack and meg got into a hall of fame so you hmm. can take that with you and do with it yeah, what you well. will. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah that's just yeah it's ridiculous i will not do anything with it to, i'm not doing any of this it's just kind of happening you know what i mean yeah so of so. the bats that could have made it into the hall of fame would mm-hmm. it have been one of your selection of bats well i mean i think the ultimate thing even for jack and i and ian would be i mean that one's really cool because it's kind of the hall of fame director explained that they really you know not everything in the hall of fame is oh this was a bat from the world series and this happened you know just mm-hmm. straight baseball he likes to mix it up and talk about how culture intersects with baseball and so this is a very much kind of how music and culture intersect with baseball type exhibit that he's going to be i guess building around this kind of thing Mm -hmm. so it's super cool and i'm proud for warstick because that is kind of what we're influencing right but would i like like a world series crazy moment in the history of baseball bat to get in yeah (laughs) jack jack would too because he's you know such he's so enthralled with the game and, and the history of it and and all that stuff and uh, so I mean that could happen you we know, can that fear to the cool. World Series from that because not only hmm. did you get into the Hall of Fame with a with a Warstick bat the first home run of the World Series this year was a Warstick hmm. bat if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken uh, yeah, from the actually, Dodgers that's crazy. right exactly so um, <laughs> yeah so uh, Matt Kemp who's a really great player joined up with Warstick in the off season, and then you know a lot of people had written him off and kind of said he's too old and he's washed up and this and that and then he proceeded to basically be one of the best stories in baseball this year and have this huge comeback career which culminated in um, the Dodgers making all the way to the World Series so kind of one of our main I guess you would call him ambassadors a guy swinging our bat makes it to the World Series and of course Ian makes it to the World Series and then yeah. game one me and Jack and Lalo uh, get to go to game one and lo and behold so it was actually Warstick's first at bat in the World Series it was actually Matt Kemp's first at bat in the World Series. Wow. wow! So we were kind of out in uh, left left field line, and he hit it. And you know, we're all three just looking up, kind of it's flying overheads, and we're just all you can hear us all saying, "Please go out! Please go out! Please go out!" <laughs> um, and then we just kind of like lost our minds, you know. So we actually it was really cool to, to see it, just yeah. to be there and have it flying overhead, kind of thing. And then um, and that kind of led to. I guess the exposure they gave us on TV was ridiculous. So. Which, by the way, we were getting like calls and texts from friends and family saying like, hey, Jack White's on the World Series. And James and I are watching it going, we think that's Ben. That looks like Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was amazing. That was me talk just about... hiding under my hat. Yeah. <laughs> but talk about exposure. Like that is the ultimate advertising. Uh, two players Whoa. on two different teams, both in the World Series, both using your like, bats. Like some kind of weird weird arms dealer in this war that's going on in the field because you have you have an in on both sides you're like i have weaponized both of you guys yeah uh you know yeah i mean i yeah i could work my channels let's just say but like, like i said the reality is i'm only able to work my channels because the story is interesting and people are generally interested in it so um actually i mean really what happened is just I mean, just a string of events. I I was in an Angels-Dodgers game earlier in the summer. 
Um, actually, the, the, the California Sandlot game, I think, is when... No, no, that was before that. Anyway, so I'm in a Cal, I'm in an Angels-Dodgers games. I meet in the in the clubhouse. I meet Ken Rosenthal, who's the reporter who did that, and he's he's Fox he's Fox Baseball's main kind of on on uh, sideline reporter. Really great guy, super yeah. super respected baseball. And just in, someone introduced me to him, and he said, "Oh man, this is really cool." And turns out, of course, his son's a giant Jack White fan, like giant. He's young, 25. And into music, and um, I said, "Well, Jackson tour. If you're ever in the same city, we can take you to the show." And he took me up on it, right? And so he went to a show in Santa Barbara. He and his son got to see Jack up close and got the whole experience. And then, then you know, we ended up in the World Series, and I'm on the field the uh, pregame, and there's Ken, and he says, "Hey, uh, you know, we do these little uh, sideline reports, and it so you've got Matt Kemp and Kinsler swinging the bat in the game, right?" I'm like, "Yeah," and he goes, "Is Jack here?" And I'm like, "Maybe," <laughs> and uh, kind of said, "No promises, but I mean, it might be cool if we talked about that." And I was like, "I would be fine with that." Um, yeah, no but I didn't, I didn't think he would do it, you know, because it's the World Series and it's Game One and it's Nash, it's broadcast over the world, and it's like you've got better things to talk about than us. But I think when Matt hit that home run. I thought, hmm, they might do this because it's just an interesting side note. And um, about ten minutes later, I got a text that said, "Where are you guys sitting?" And I told Jack, um, <laughs> "I would, I think, I think they might do this." And then they did it. So I mean, it had to be. It was pretty surreal just because of the moment. And like, yeah, it cost us zero, and it had to be. I'd say it's better than a commercial because yeah. you have a ca- you have a captive audience because it's in game. So it's yeah. basically in game captive audience hearing a testimonial yeah well witnessing a testimonial like the the proof is in the pudding and i I would say i would not call it unworthy of attention on the on the world series because uh what warstick is doing is something that's bringing something fresh to an industry that kind of needed something fresh Mm -hmm. uh yeah they've been working with the same equipment for decades upon decades upon decades if not centuries so having something new in the game is exciting uh yeah. if not for the people who are watching casually than for the baseball nerds who are looking at equipment sure. you know well i think i hope i'm not sure major league baseball super liked that i have no idea but i have i doubt that they really loved that we got the attention i know my competitors didn't like it i know that <laughs> the official bat sponsor of major league baseball was like probably losing their mind because they <laughs> aren't getting that and i just think you know i try i'm trying to have a great relationship with major league baseball which is tough because they are very traditional and they are very rule oriented and they're change slowly and i'm not trying to change the game but i think there's a mindset of adding to it and everything's evolving around them so at some point the game has to change with culture within the context of also respecting the game but um you know i'm hoping that it's helping them anything that they were doing if we're bringing more excitement to the game to people that maybe didn't pay attention to, to it as much that's got to help them in a little way but yeah. Yeah. still I mean, it's literally um, a fresh coat uh, of paint. You I, was, know? I, mean, I was about ready for maybe the, uh, you know, like one of those blackouts to happen on TV during the, the <laughs> testimonial, like the Major League Baseball was going to pull the plug on the on the thing or something yeah. like that. But uh, yeah, we, you could have been you could have been the Janet Jackson's nipple of the World right. Series this year. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I tell Jack, I told Jack, I go, you know, we work hard every day to get you know more awareness. If you just streak across the field naked, we could just end this right now, and this yeah. would be really easy, man. <laughs> 
it, it would definitely uh, change people's perception of Jack White at baseball games because right now he's memed as a guy who frowns, and if he streaked, yeah, that would definitely. Well, do you know something. what's crazy? That whole thing is crazy. I've got I've gone to many baseball games with him now, and I've gone to many. I've gone to tons of baseball games with people that are there, people that are genuinely bored at a baseball game, right? Mm-hmm. And they yeah. are really not into it. They're on their phone. When I go with Jack and and Lalo and these guys, like. I have to pay attention to every pitch because they're into every pitch. They're they're as into it as anyone that you ever see at a baseball game from a fan perspective. Um, Dominic keeps score, old school on paper. And I make fun of him like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm keeping score. It's cool. I'm like, that's not cool. It's but, 2018, Dominic. Come on. There's an know, but it's, that, Dominic. But it's cool. It's like I'm bringing vinyl back. I'm bringing score keeping back, you know, that kind of thing. Right, and, right. The fact, the idea that Jack would be at a baseball game not having fun is kind of comical to me. Now, yeah. the look on your face might not say it. It's because he's paying attention. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then actually when they were filming us during that commentary, you know what we were doing? We were actually watching Ian hit. And we were serious because we're like, we, our boy needs a hit. Yeah, yeah. So we not we might not look like all happy and jovial, but we're focused on it's kind of like watching your kid or watching your brother in a big situation like it's not funny <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like hey we i want my boy to get a hit you know so we probably didn't look like that and you know so that whole meme thing oh it's it dumb. Does, I, I, it's dumb i've seen jack sign these bats like literally walk off the stage go into the dressing room five minutes later he's signing 50 bats and it's just like you don't, you don't have to do this right now and he's like no nah, like this is a great time to do this you know what I mean and I'm like okay so there's probably real Jack White sweat on them you know that kind of thing. So. there's a certain audience out there I'm sure who wants that <laughs> yeah. yeah right the, the Tumblr contingent yeah so that's yeah. cool I mean like it's always it's just uh, you know it's still a young company it's growing and anything people can do to tell other people about it is still the biggest thing and um buying stuff is great and um all that stuff don't be an internet troll i mean just crap like that yeah because i can't think of anything i can't i you know i don't know when the grand opening is going to be we've kind of hoping kind of more february march this point so that will be fun when it comes out so yeah just thanks for your support and buy jack white records and all that stuff yeah man For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and The Third Men Podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever. But to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. (laughs) 
You can head to our social media pages. That's facebook.com slash yesterday and today podcast or facebook.com slash third men. Or you could head to society six dot com slash Kaminsky family podcast. That's society, the number six dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I family podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me. Thank you.